Hello everyone, I'm Frederick Gieschen and today I'm speaking with my friend Nick Majuli of Ritholz Wealth Management. Nick also writes the excellent personal finance blog of Dollars and Data and he just happened to come out with his first book with the somewhat provocative title Just Keep Buying. Now Nick has a ton of advice and what I like about his work is that he balances his personal perspective with the answers he's getting out of the data and he does it in a way that's balanced and pragmatic. He doesn't guilt you into foregoing the next next cup of coffee, right, to save that extra dollar. It's it's very much what are the rules of of data driven saving and investing and and working your way to wealth um, that that you can actually implement. And it's often advice that is simple and straightforward, but not easy to implement. So, for example, there's a an entire section in the book that deals with how to invest um, a slug of cash if you get an inheritance or you get um, liquidation of, of some kind and suddenly you have um, cash that you have to that you want to put into the market and the question is well do you do that over time do you scale in do you do it um, at once and i really appreciate how nick lays out the data lays out the returns over time even though my own instincts usually guide me a little bit to more towards the idea of uh, of timing the market now nick's book and that's where just keep buying comes from is is predicated on the idea that you can't um, predict the market and it's better to make good data-driven decisions every day um, and not be not try to be a hero um, and i think that's that's something at least that i still even though conceptually i know um, this makes sense i still struggle with it that's my own overconfidence bias at work. So I really enjoyed chatting with Nick. I highly recommend you read his work. Follow him on Twitter if that's where you hang out. Um, as usual, none of this is investment advice. And with that, let's go. All right, Nick's. Nick, thank you so much for joining me. And we're going to... I'm, I'm so excited, man. Like, the, the book is done. I've, I've read it. I found a lot... Okay, I'm going to come right out and say it and, like... I enjoyed the book. I thought it's very practical. It's got a lot of good rules that I want to ask you about. Um, but obviously, I was also a little bit triggered. I was like, ah, don't pick stocks. And and <laughs> and there is um, there's a really interesting theme, I think, overall in the book, which is you go through a lot of data and you're like, OK, this is how this actually works. But then you also have quotes in there that, that basically say, look, even if you look at all the data, for most people, the instinct is going to be to do something else. And um, there's one quote, I think it's from uh, Jeremy Siegel, maybe, mm -hmm. where it's like, your instinct is to actually just ignore the data. And like, that's what always happens. So just, just tell me about what you're, you know, writing the book, like, what's your expectancy? Like, do, do you think it's going to change the world? Or is it no matter how much data you present, people just do what they do? I think, yeah, at the end of the day, behavior rules a lot of stuff. And I think that's why the Siegel quote, which is, you know, fear has a greater grasp on human action than does the impressive weight of historical evidence. And I think that's why you have to kind of like keep reminding yourself of that quote. And it's my favorite investment quote, because it's the only thing that kind of keeps me, you know, from acting like my, you know, whatever I, my behavior take over my logic. Right. You know, it's like the, the rider on the elephant type of thing. Right. So the elephant usually rules all, but you have to really kind of remind yourself of why we're doing this. What's the long-term really think long-term, you know, I've only been investing for, you know, basically 10 years now, 2012 graduated, had my first job. So I've been in this, in the game for a decade and markets mostly went up the whole time. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, obviously there's been some hiccups here and there. March, 2020 was a little, it was a little bumpy for everybody, but it was also the fastest, you know, drop and fastest recovery ever. So um, in the grand scheme of things, I haven't seen true, true, you know, I, I obviously lived through 08, but I didn't have any dollars invested. So I didn't see myself go get cut in half. So I agree with you. I think behavior matters a lot. That's why Morgan Housel's book, Psychology Money, was such a hit because people know intrinsically like behavior matters. It's just very hard for me to test it, right? We can't do randomized control trials of mindsets, right? We can't say you guys follow this and you guys follow this and see what happens after 30 years. It's really tough to do that. So I have to, you know, given just how I am with wanting to see evidence of everything, I have to try and, you know, write the best book I can given the data available. Yeah. And I just thought it was Going through the book, I think you're doing a, a really good job just with the with the charts, kind of demonstrating certain certain things. Like for example, um, let's say you 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 get some liquidity and you decide, okay, should I buy into the market immediately or should should I buy into it over time, right? And so you're kind of presenting the case for in, in most cases you're better off being being in the market. And even as I'm reading it page by page, I'm like, no, I get it, Nick. 
But right now, valuations are kind of high. And I think this time is different. Like, I feel so much of that inner voice of like, no, I know, I know this is what the data says. But, you know, I, that, that um, wanting to just be a little bit smart about it um, is, is so strong. So I'm, I'm curious, like, where did you focus there? Like, just tell me about how you think about that, uh, that data set in particular. I mean, I think the, the counter to that is maybe you should be buying assets that don't seem as overvalued. And if you're like, well, everything seems yep. overvalued, then like, okay, well, then I <laughs> no offense, but what do you do, right? So if you think like US stocks are overvalued, I'm not saying you don't buy any US stocks, but maybe if you normally would do, let's say your equity portfolio is 50% US stock, 50% uh, international stocks, maybe right now you're doing a you know, 40% US, 60% international or 30% US, 70% international. Or you're not, I think the whole one or zero thing, giving up, going all to cash or going 100% stocks. I think those big shifts are where people really amplify risk. And so I think the ways around that is to kind of change your weightings a little bit. So remember, I say just keep buying. And I think you should just keep buying income producing assets. I don't tell you which assets to buy because the information is going to change, right? Like I even, I say, what's a good income producing asset? And I say bonds, but you know, with yields as low as they are and inflation as high as it is, like obviously that's wealth destroying, right? Like that's very obvious, you know? So like, yes, bonds are good for, you know, de-risking and for, for a host of different things. It's good to have some bonds, but at the same time, I know like we're not going to just have like, oh yeah, let's have a, a 70% bond portfolio. Like unless you just have so much wealth where it doesn't matter and you can easily take that hit to, you know, losing 8% inflation or whatever, or 6% real every year after the yields. You know, I just don't think it always makes sense. So everything's contextual, and so I, you can't you can't give an absolute in a world that's always changing. And I think that's why I don't say you need to own U.S. stocks and you should buy U.S. stocks no matter what all the time. You know, and so I think you generally should be buying U.S. stocks. But if you if you do feel like there's some really wild valuation stuff, then buy something else, buy other equity risk um, risk assets, right? And so. But that's what I, I make very, but all my shifts are minor. As I say, you know, the cliff and stuff is like sin a little, right? So if you're going to do it, do it a little bit. And I generally try to tell people not to even do that because once you start sinning a little, it's very easy to sin a lot, right? So I think the main takeaway here is like, yeah, I would say just keep buying. And like valuations were high in 2017 and the market's doubled since then, right? You know, every yeah. market, I think yeah, yeah. hit 30 in 2017. So that's my other counter is like, oh, but the valuations are, yeah, they've been high for five years and yields are low too. So like if yields go back, if the 10 year hits 5% and we're still at a cape of 36, then yeah, you can start to worry. But while the yields are low, I think this might make sense. So, you know, I, so I would say generally just keep buying, but if you are worried and you can't sleep at night, you know, having the same allocation, move some of that money, just make minor shifts, just enough to make yourself sleep at night. That's kind of the peace of mind I think you need to get to. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you're saying. So the sin a little means um, that's having sort of a, a small bucket where you kind of follow the, I'll say the gambling instinct of just picking picking some stocks. Is that what you're referring to? The, the oh no, that's that that's more of like uh, this is even assuming you only own index funds. Like let's say okay. normally you would have a fifty your equity allocation. Let's say you have a 70-30 portfolio stock bonds. You have thirty percent in bonds, seventy percent is in equities. Of that 70%, let's say you split it 50-50 between uh, US and international. So you have 35% of your total allocations in US, 35% is in international. And let's say you know, you're like, you know what, US looks really overvalued right now. Maybe instead of putting every new dollar and splitting it, you know, 35 cents goes to US stocks, 35 cents goes international. Maybe you put 30 cents into US stocks or 25 cents into US stocks and the rest is international as a, as a kind of a hedge. Now, of course, that could end up being wrong, but like, it's it, it's a it's these little tricks that are marginally not going to really make a difference, but in your mind, they like behaviorally they make a difference. You're like, oh, I'm not even if I get screwed, I'm not getting screwed as badly as I would have been getting screwed by listening to Nick characters as by all the time, right? So you're kind of just like hedging a little. You're kind of moving a little bit out of your out of that zone. Um, but yeah, in terms of buying individual stocks, I always think, yeah, you can definitely do it with like a small percentage of your money. And I think I say that in the book. Like if you want to do that to have fun, five five ten percent of your money, whatever it is, like it's not going to harm you in the long run. Um, I just think it's tough to do. And some people just love it. And if you just love it, you can't, you can't get out of that. And I know there's people just like, I can't, I have to look at 10 Ks. I have to do this. And that's just a part of who they are. And you can't change that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I just think a lot of people are doing it, trying to beat the market. And if that's your only goal, then I, if your only goal is to make money and maximize dollars, I think stock picking is not the way. If you have other ulterior goals of like, oh, I love this or this or that, then that's, that's a, com that's a completely separate argument yeah. we're making here. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's true, and I, I I'm trying to write a little piece on it because I think people do it for a variety of different reasons. But you made a really interesting point, which I, I hadn't thought about it this way. You're like, okay, if you're if you're doing it to beat the market, right, like to um, really for 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 return reasons, 
you're like, how do you actually know that you're good? And you run into the same conundrum of when you're trying to pick a manager, right? And you're like, how long should the track record be? And like, how should I evaluate them? But the same obviously applies to kind of figuring out your own skill versus luck. And it's like, you make the argument, like, why would you engage in something where you can't measure or where it's extremely difficult to measure your own skill? And I never framed it that way, but I thought it was a really good point. Not just like it's unlikely that you beat the market, but but some people will. Um, but even how do you know? Because like what, what time frame and like how it, it's just such a. I, I like the way you frame that. It's like yeah, just imagine like think of it this way. Imagine you're trying to get in shape, right? You're trying to lose weight or something. Yeah. Maybe you want to lose ten pounds. So you go to the gym for three months, see no difference. Go to the gym for six months, see no difference. Go to the gym for one year, see no difference. And then all of a sudden you lose 10 pounds, like just out mm-hmm. of nowhere. It's like, you, no one, if that's what it took to lose the 10 pounds, no one would do it because the results would take, and already with diet and exercise stuff, it are, there already is this lag, right? It's not like you right yeah. away, you start seeing results. Yeah. Within a few weeks, you might be able to see something a month, two months, within three to six months, you'll see some results within a year for sure. You'll see results, right? But with stock picking, that's not true. Like you and I can, we can go tomorrow and say, hey, we're going to pick uh, five stocks each for the next year, 20% each equal weight portfolio. And if I beat you, does that mean I'm a better stock picker? Like, no, there's absolutely, I mean, after one data point over one year, no way. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I could yeah, be yeah. a better stock picker, but how many of these games would we have to do before we knew definitively I was better than you? I mean, it would take a while, I think. And I think it sometimes could take a decade or longer. And this is obviously debated in the literature. I remember... Corey Hofstein was talking about factors, and this is obviously not the same exact as stock picking. But he's like, how do you know when a factor is dead? It's like, it could take you 20 years, right? right. So it's like, <laughs> if it takes 20 years to find out a factor, it's dead. How long is it? it takes roughly the same amount of time to figure out if a manager is really good. And I'm not saying you need to do 20 years, but let's just say you did it for 10 years, right? That I think 10 years with decent certainty, you would know if someone's good, but like 10 years is a long time. Remember, I've been investing for 10 years. My whole life's changed in five, five years ago. I just started yeah. blogging. I didn't have a book. I didn't do all this. Imagine I have to do this again. And then I, then I would only, only then would I know if I have skill. It's like only after 10 years, like, oh, actually, oh, shouldn't be doing this. Wasted a decade. Like yeah. with, with basketball or something else, like you can see yourself improving. You can get feedback really quickly with investing. It's not the same. So that's, that's my counter. And that's why I think it's just so hard to do. And it's, I'm not, it's something against stock pickers. I love stock pickers because they're basically allowing me and other passive investors to free ride off their research and their due diligence. And so I love stock pickers. I just don't think it's for everyone. I think a lot of people yeah. are in it that shouldn't be in it. To- totally agree. And I think, so, I mean, this, by the way, this was like this, I think this, this idea is really powerful. Just like comparing it to the gym or basketball or anything else where you kind of have a shorter feedback loop. And like, what if that was also kind of random or looked very random, right? You, you, you'd go crazy. Trying to trying to practice, mm-hmm. um, and I think a, a big theme that struck me in the book is you you, you do you, you include some personal anecdotes which I really appreciated, and they revolve not just around finance but also kind of how you spend your time and where you spend your like your focus maybe right you talk about oh you could have gone work for like a large tech company and like you know gotten equity and like there's so you make these like big decisions about how you structure your life and what you do. Um, and they have big implications, but you don't really think a lot about it as you're, as you're in that moment. So I'm curious, kind of your own journey. And like, now you're, I mean, you've picked this path and and you've reminisced a little bit about it and you could have done something else. Like, why is this, um, I don't know what, what, what you call it, but like financial education and like going through the data, like, why is this important to you? Like, why do you do it? And how do you like, you know, how do you, how do you explain it to, to Nick of the past? Like, no, this was a good, this was a good choice. And I feel, you know, this is important. Well, yeah, I think when I first, I wrote this post about this called, um, you know, we begin our lives as growth stocks and end our lives as value stocks, which became that, that, which became that piece of the book. Mm -hmm. But when I first wrote this post, I think I was like, I I had a bunch of friends that IPO'd at tech companies and then all had like, I don't know how much money they all, I don't really know the exact, but I know many of them were in, you know, definitely six, all of them were in six figure range, some of them seven figure range in terms of the amount of equity. And so I was like, wow, these people just bailed out. Like, it's like, I could have done that. I remember getting offers to interview at all these places. Like I, I got, I've been offered to interview at Facebook many times. I turned them down every time, you know? And so uh, that's basically what happened. And where was this thing where I was like, Hey, this is not really for me. Um, and then I look back and I was like, did I regret that? And now I think about it now. And it's like, I, I don't regret that anymore because I feel like this is more of what I was meant to do. I think I was meant to do this type of stuff. I start to, mm-hmm. I kind of, I can trace it back. I mean, then again, I could be justifying. You never really know, right? You can never truly know yourself. You're always trying to tell a story about yourself and you could be justifying yeah. it. But I try to think back and like someone, for example, when someone asked me, how long did this book take to write? You know, mm-hmm. the, the, the classical answers, well, when did I first start writing it, writing it? And it's like, well, technically, you know, I started putting it together, compiling it in like January, 2021, finished like July, 2021. So I would say seven months, but 
I use material that goes back like four years before that. So is the answer like yeah. four years from like the very first word I wrote on something that entered the book? So is that four years or is that like, oh, you know, when I was five years old or four years older or something like that, my mom, I lost my tooth and I put it under my pillow and the tooth fairy was supposed to come and tooth fairy never came because I never told my mother. <laughs> Next, I told my mother, magically, the tooth fairy came. I very obviously realized that it wasn't the tooth fairy, it was my mother. I actually woke up when she was doing it. And so I've been skeptical. I never believed in the tooth fairy, Santa Claus. Like after that, I was skeptical of everything. I questioned everything. So did I start writing the book then? I mean, if you really think about it, I start questioning everything in my worldview. I mean, where does the book really start? And like, I think that's a question that's like, you have to kind of get it yourself. And what do you really care about the world? And what do you think? And what's your philosophy on the world? And I, I just try to question a lot of things, I think. And I, there's so many things I still don't question. I just accept because I don't know, like, I don't know anything about that industry. I hear something, I just trust an expert. And I say, okay, that's probably right. Cause they seem like they know what they're talking about. But how many times have I, have I just accepted the opinions of experts in personal finance? And then I was like, wait, that's not right. You know, max your 401k or you're not saving enough mm. for retirement or all these, like you go through all these things. When I look at the data, I'm like, that's not true. Like at least on a generalized level for individuals, that could be true. But on like an, on the average level, the, the, or the, yeah, the median person, the, what we're hearing from the news media is not matching what I'm seeing in the data. And I'm just like, why is this so off? And that's kind of why I wrote the book. Yeah. So what I liked about the book is there's, I think there was a good balance of using data to, to, to illustrate some, maybe some misconceptions, but definitely some things that are like a little bit more complicated, right? Like, I don't know, like the, the whole market, everything about market timing, I was like, yeah, I get it, but it, it, it probably needs to be said over and over again. But there's other things that are very um, sort of back of the napkin type rules that are easy to remember, like the 2X rule, or just, so talk to me a little bit about like, what are the things that are, that seem not that important, but have kind of a, a really big impact on your life in terms of just financial decisions where people just sort of, you know, that you don't overthink, like you talk a lot about just like spending versus income, just there's, there's a lot in the book where I feel like people live their life on autopilot and, and certain rules kind of help you, I don't know, fix, fix behaviors. I, I don't, I don't know how to come at it, but I feel like the, there's like mm -hmm. stuff in there where it's really like, wait, these decisions, like, um, like how much you spend on like, I don't know, you, you get a raise, like how, how you reallocate your own capital. I think a lot of people just like don't don't think about it, and you, and you. I think you do a good job of um, having like these 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 rules that are kind of easy to remember. It's like oh the two X rule. Like to talk, tell me about like what do you think are like the big the big things there? Yeah, yeah. So I think I think the the main one of the main points I wanted to, to get across with the book is that people worry a lot about money. I mean, it's the top stressor most years, not every year, but many years. Obviously, during COVID, it was money and obviously health, but. Um, in most years, it's, that's what people stress about. And so I wanted to people were to worry less about money. And so I said, okay, let's, let's think about different ways they can do that. We can use rules like the two X rule where, oh, Hey, I, I feel like I'm going to splurge on this nice pair of dress shoes or this nice watch or this nice, you know, handbag, whatever it is. And it's like, okay, I'm going to spend this, you know, 300, 400, $500 before I do that. Let me save another 500 and invest that for my future or donate it to, for, to a good cause, whatever you come up with different ways of doing this, where you can kind of get rid of the guilt. You can have guilt-free spending or guilt-free splurging. I mean, it shouldn't be everything you do, but it's just like, Hey, I want to get this nice thing for myself. And to be a little selfish, I want to do something nice for either my future self or for someone else. And so that's going to kind of let my, my, uh, psychology off the hook, so to speak. So I can do this. So that's one way of looking at it in terms of like thinking about the raise. I think there's always in the personal finance space, we're being guilted once again. Oh, don't, as soon as you get a raise, save every dollar of it. Now, if you're in debilitating debt or you have, you're in a really tough financial spot, yes, you should save every dollar of your raise, right? But if you're doing okay, you're saving some money, whatever, and you get a raise, like my, I show mathematically using these simulations and stuff, you can save half of it and spend the other half and you'll probably, and you'll be fine, basically. Like you, I, I do these like just simulations where I say, hey, if this person you know, is on a steady state to retirement and they get this raise, if they save at least half of it, they're usually good to go, right? So that's the kind of the idea of how you would, how you would do that type of stuff. So all of it's about reducing guilt. It's about, you know, saying, Hey, it's okay. It's okay to spend a little bit of money. Like it's not, if you ever splurge a dollar, you're evil or something. That's the kind of like we're being told. And this is really, yeah. Oh no, you got to yeah. save every dollar of your raise. It's all the type of stuff. And I'm just like kind of over that. And I wanted to say like, okay, not only the data, but I create simulations that show that you can, you know, you can worry a little bit less. And so that's, I think the point of a lot of these things is like, you can worry a little bit less about money and find the things that actually matter. And I think that's why even when I talk about retirement, I think the most, the big takeaway when we're talking about retirement isn't money. It's like, what are you going to retire to? What are you going to do with your time? Because that's, that's what drives people, you know, what, what you're, what's going to consume your day-to-day -day moments in retirement from age, well, let's say 65 to let's say 85, that 20, 30 year period or whatever it is. Um, 
what are you going to do with your day to day? And that's, what's going to be more important to you than how much money you have. Cause I promise you, you can have all that money, but if you're just sitting around on the couch, not knowing what to do, or you don't want to travel, you don't want to spend time with your family or whatever it is, you're just going to be miserable. So I say, figure out what you're going to do in retirement. Cause I think a lot of people, you know, don't know what they want out of life. And so by the time they get to the end of life and like, Oh, I haven't thought I haven't planned for this. Now it's a, it's a real problem. Like you have all the money in the world, but you don't know what to do with it. Right. And I think that's kind of worrisome. Yeah. I mean, does it, I think there's there's a couple of moments in the book where it feels to me like you're um, you're taking issue a little bit with some of the advice that's being given out. Like you know, there's things like the fire movement or like just uh, the the guilt that you just mentioned, where people it seems people kind of shake out at two ends of the extreme, right? There's obviously you can have very bad financial behavior, like you can go into like a lot of credit card debt, whatever, just overspend. But you can also go all the way to the other end and be like, no, I'm going to reduce my, my spending, I'm going to save everything and sort of, um, get out of balance with kind of the enjoyment I get out of life and, and have that intense guilt. And like, it, it becomes sort of warped in a different way. Um, and, and, and you, you mentioned, um, it's like, what do you do it for? Right. Like to, to, to your point about meaning, like, okay, so you, so what if you retired in a, in a few years and on a very low, um, amount you could spend that then what like is that actually what you want to do like just live in a in a in a camper on like a really low like there's i think it's the same as retirement right it's like what are you doing this for like what's the what's the idea behind it and i think you even mentioned sort of you bec- I, I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure if i agree with that but you're like you kind of become unimportant and i think you mentioned it in like you, you sort of lack your mission in life of of doing something else so you tell me about what, what you think about fire or like just generally maybe some of the advice that's out there where it's sort of, okay, be, be careful before you, before you follow that path. Yeah. So I think the fire movement, um, for some people, it actually works really well. And you can actually look and there's like a lot of people who are very happy with their fire movement. They did it. They're very happy, but there's a lot of people I think, uh, get seduced by it because it's like, Oh, this idea of freedom and freedom to do anything you want. And oh, this is great. And don't get me wrong. That's great on the surface. But once you get there, it's like, okay, well, what are you going to do with that freedom? And if you haven't thought of that part, then that's where people get in trouble. If people know, okay, like, for example, let's say you're a photographer, but you don't make enough money off photography to like live the life you want to live. You're like, I, I wish I could travel the world and take photography and do all these things and enter photo competitions. Let's say you have that perfect little life planned out, right? You can't do that, though, because you're still in the rat race, you have to pay for things. So you do the fire movement and do that for, let's say, seven years, you get through it. Finally, you get your money, then you go live out your photography life. Great. That's a perfect use of that type of thing where you're your day job or your 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 what you like to do can't pay for your lifestyle. And so then you have to go fire to kind of get there. Then there's people who hear about those people that, that do that and they're like, wow, that would be awesome to do that. But they don't care about photography. They don't know anything about photography competitions. They just say, I'm going to just do what they did. So they follow that five to seven year path. They get on the other side of it. Then they're like, okay, I'm traveling the world doing this and that. And I've had people, these people DM me and stuff. There's not, I mean, I don't have data to say like this. This is the number of per- percentage of fire people that are unsatisfied. I don't know that answer, but that just does happen sometimes. And so it's about figuring out what's that balance and what are you going to do after? And if you haven't thought about that part, and if you don't know, like I can picture my life trying to do this, that's where you get into trouble. And I've heard of even, there was a guy who went fire, him and his wife went, did the fire movement. They retired early. They're like, oh, wow, that's so cool. But then they saw all their friends upgrading houses, going nicer vacations, doing all these things they couldn't do. And then um, in, in this case, his wife was like, really feeling like she was missing out. And so they ended up having fights over it. They ended up breaking up. And then he got a health issue that he didn't plan for. So he had to pay a lot more money than he expected. So he had to go back to work. So that's very unfortunate what happened. I think he got a little bit unlucky there, but that's the type of things where those pressures are going to happen. Inflation is going to happen. You're going to see people upgrade their lifestyles over time. And if you're, you're, you're fixing to one lifestyle, you don't realize like how much things are going to progress in the future. You know, just imagine how much the world's changed in 30 years. Imagine how much lifestyles have changed. Imagine, you know, smartphones didn't exist 30 years ago. Right. So to think, Oh, I, well, this is my spending forever. It's like, well, no, now you have this new spending your house, your home, your home phone bill wasn't as high as what a, you know, a cell phone bill is today when spending much owning the phone, especially. So it's like, you have to uh, account for new expenses and new things happening that are going to change the world and that you have to pay for. So there's things like that as well. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I'm not sure how much this is not about the book, but I'm sure you run into this when when you talk to people. How much um, when you talked about this this couple and people sort of upgrading their lifestyles around them, right? It always strikes me how much you're influenced just by your social environment and like I guess where you live, right? Like if you if you live in New York, you, you're surrounded by um, different lifestyles than if you're in a, in a in another place, and and that comes with an expense. And I feel like it's it's almost impossible to just detach yourself from that especially if it's if it's not just yourself but you're in a relationship you have a family right maybe you have kids 
And there's sort of so many influences that kind of affect your spending patterns and how you feel about it. And your entire book, I think there's this another theme, which is sort of, it's all relative, right? It's how you feel about how much you make and, and, and whether you feel good about uh, your success. It's all, it's all relative. So, so, so tell me about that. And like, what, what can you, if, is there anything you can do about that? You know, like, how do you, how do you deal with that yourself? Uh, yeah, I think what you have to do is you have to kind of keep some sense of perspective of like, you know, kind of where you're from and like understand like where you are relative to others, like especially on a global level. I think this is something that a lot of people in the developed world and especially United States, New York City, big cities don't really have a grasp of because you're right. As you keep kind of moving to different social circles, you're going to see the expenses go up, right? You start, you know, you start flying private sometimes. Now you're hanging, you're hanging out at the airport with people who fly private all the time, right? And so now those people are even, right? So you see what I'm saying? If you start, you start getting into that lifestyle, you're saying, oh, I'm going to start doing this. Or I start going to these social clubs or these events, right? You start, oh, I'm going to go to galas and donate money and do these nice things. Okay, well, you're going to run into people that do that a lot more than you do, right? And so you're going to start, as you start changing your social circle, you're going to see a lot of this stuff change. Even where you live too affects that, right? So I think all of these things influence people in ways that's, that's very interesting. And I think the only way to kind of keep yourself grounded is to like, realize like how well off you have it. I think on a, on an absolute basis. And what I say in the book is like, you know, if you have a hundred thousand dollars in like liquid net worth, that puts you in like the top 10%. I think it's just net worth. I'm not even liquid net worth it puts you in the top 10% of the world. And I, I would consider you rich if you're in the top 10% of the world, right? There's 7 you know billion people or whatever it is. You're in the top 700 million, you know, that's still like, it's like that 700 million rich people, a lot of those other people aren't as rich, right? And so just realizing that kind of keeps you humble and kind of, you know, makes you realize how, how nice you have it relative to most of the world. But I think it's, that's really hard for people like, well, I don't feel like I'm that rich. I'm like, you know, I'm doing hanging out with these people. And I get that. I get that feeling. But it's the same. I, the argument I make in there is that, you know, Lloyd Blankfein, the ex-CEO of Goldman Sachs, uh, he says he's not rich. And he's a billionaire. This guy's a billionaire. He doesn't say he's rich. Why? Because he's hanging out with Jeff Bezos. That's why he's hanging out with someone who's 100x or multiple more than that of his wealth, right? So. I understand his argument, but it's also kind of ridiculous. And so when I say to you, like, oh, you're worth, you have a net worth of 200 grand, like on a global scale, you're rich. Like, but Nick, that's not fair. You can't compare me to these random people throughout the rest of the world. It's like Lloyd Blankfein's going to say the same thing about you. He's going to say, you can't compare me to these average people. Like, I'm not, I'm not hanging out with them. Like, I mean, he, he wouldn't say that publicly, but I bet he's thinking that. And it's fair. It's a fair argument. It's a, it's, it's ridiculous argument, but it's just as ridiculous as your argument, right? We're making, we're just cutting hairs on what's, what's the right amount globally yeah. versus locally versus whatever. Right. So that's the problem in his social circle. He probably doesn't feel rich, but in our social circle, he would be rich. Right. And that's the difference. And so it's such a weird game we're all playing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, 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 I hear you. I, I, I feel like that was, I, I like the example, but I feel like it was a clear example of somebody just being uh, somewhat out of step. With, yeah. Um, oh, I agree. What's the world? Um, <laughs> And, and I think the hundred grand, like I, I hear you at the same time, you, you do have to take into account a little bit sort of like the, just what things cost, especially if it was like about homes and you're like, mm-hmm. it's like, it's hard to argue that you're rich when people like look around and like whatever, they can't buy a home for their family or whatever, just because like, they, like it, it's weird, it's nuanced, but, but I think, I think it's a, it's a good point, um, it, especially in terms of how you feel about it. Right. And, 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 and um, yeah, you can make a lot of, you have a great, you have a great blog post about this. Um, we have this sort of step function um, of, of spending habits and you get into how your lifestyle kind of um, doesn't change kind of on a, doesn't change gradually, but it's sort of, you, you look at kind of the bigger expenses in your life and, and um, whether, I mean, tell me about them, but the way I remember it is like, whether you have to like, think about like, whether a specific expense is like a, a big deal, but like, tell me about that, that mindset. Oh, say I thought that would. Yeah, I think I think things wealth moves in steps. I think I'm going to write more about this in the future. But yeah, basically everything is like a logarithmic function in the sense of like, if you're worth, let's say, in the United States, if you're worth six hundred thousand dollars, if I give you a hundred grand right now, like that's probably not going to material change materially change your life. But I give you a million, that might, right? And you know, if you're worth ten million, if I give you a million, probably won't materially change your life. But give you ten million, that might, right? So it's like it's these bigger jumps where that's how you actually start seeing differences in your life. And there's people who have very nothing that basically nothing, 10 grand would change their life. Right. So if you think about it, like just even a basic wealth transfer of like, I don't know, five grand to every person in the U S like that that's below a certain level would like change their lives in massive ways. That's why I think a lot of the COVID stimulus was so powerful in a way, because like that was the highest, I think Congressman, a, a, the highest congressional approval rating since I don't, since maybe ever was after all the stimulus checks came out. Cause like people are like, wow, I actually have like a little bit of breathing room and like, I can, you know, you know, afford things. And it's like really wild for people, but it does alleviate stress in such a big way. And I think 
if you think from a utilitarian perspective, like making sure no one's in that, like, you know, making ends meet and just a little bit above that even would be helpful for everybody. So that's like, it's a much bigger, longer political discussion. But yeah, I kind of, I really believe in that stuff. It's like, because it takes very little of that amount of money to bring people like so much happiness. And then obviously it like degrades after that. And so it's like getting people out of those, like where they're stressed every day, they're thinking about money to get into a place where like, okay, you know, I still am not living richly. I can't go live this extravagant lifestyle, but I don't have to worry about where my next meal is coming from. I think that, that, that simple stuff can really fundamentally change happiness. I bet it would lower crime. It would do so much stuff that would be positive. I mean, we'd have to test it, obviously. I like to see it tested, but that's kind of the, that's kind of the policy stuff I'm on. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I grew up in Germany, which is obviously just the, the society functions a little bit differently. And, and I think here is just the, um, the, the inequality or just like the wealth gap in some cases, it's just so extreme that you're like, okay, this can't, is this really what we all collectively want? And I don't, I try to like not get political because I just get upset about it. I'm like, I'm not going to change it. And like, it's, it's, it's really frustrating, but um, I do think it's, it's sort of, um, I wonder, so you wrote the book and I'm just, and just thinking because you mentioned the, the stimulus and, and kind of what's the way if you're, if you have a, a message, right? And I think really what, what you're writing is really applies to pretty much everyone other than people who are very wealthy and like don't have to worry about uh, money at all. But, but I think it's really a message for a lot of people. And at the same time, how many people actually buy and, and, and read a book? I feel mm-hmm. like this is like writing myself. I think about this all the time. Like how many people do you actually reach with a book? So I'm, I'm curious how you think about the impact you have and like the channels you use, whether it's podcasting, blogging, the book, like to get your message out on like where you feel like you can reach the most people, or like you have the book as a jumping off point, like how do you actually think about, you know, distribution and reaching people? Yeah, I think today, like, I, I don't know, I, I wish I would have data on this. I bet they've probably done some studies, like attention spans have probably gone down because of, you know, video content, a like YouTube, everything. And then now short video content, like TikTok, and it's really starting to like, collapse people's attention where every video has words written under, you know, you can see it with sound off because people look at their phones, right? So everything today, it's much harder to reach people. And so I think it's funny, because I would argue I'm trying to reach people through the worst medium possible, which is blogging, internet blogging is absolute the lowest of the totem pole, right? After that, it's probably books. After that, it's probably YouTube. And then after that, it's probably like trying to be super entertaining short form video. Um, But at the end of the day, like the people that care about this stuff, they're reading books, right? And so like, yes, would I like to reach people that don't read books? Of course I would. How do I do that? And how do I do that in a way that's still consistent with my views and everything? I'm not sure yet. Maybe I'll get into that one day. Who knows? But for me now, like I'm really just mastering this process of writing where I feel like I could write just basically about anything and I would feel comfortable doing that. So I think I'm still in the process of kind of sharpening the saw, so to speak, um, with it when it comes to writing. No, of course, I'm not the absolute best writer. There's many better writers out there in the space, but I want to get good enough where I feel like I've done almost as much as I can out of that in this discipline before I kind of jump into something else, right? Because everyone's like, Nick, you never do podcasts. And I haven't. I haven't done basically any podcasts until the book for the last five years. I've done like three or four in five years. Mm-hmm. And I don't really, because I didn't have much. To, I mean, yes, I have my blog and stuff, but I didn't have a coherent philosophy I could discuss and yeah. a core idea, which is like, it's evidence-based personal finance and investing advice, right? And that's what I care about because I feel like a lot of stuff out there is just belief and conjecture. It's what people think sounds right and intuition, this and that. And I'm just against all that. I'm like, that's great. And it's fun. Don't get me wrong. But at the end of the day, is it correct? Right? There's a lot of intuitive ideas that we've had that humans have had over history that have been proven wrong. You know, like the earth is the center of the universe. That was the, they believe that until the 1600s, right? And then Copernicus, Copernicus comes along and says, hey, that's not true. Or, you know, and so it's like, that's the type of stuff where, you know, it's challenging. That's why like one of these ideas I have is like cutting spending is not a way to raise wealth in the long run. You can do it in the short term, but the only sustainable path out as I've seen based on the data is raising your income. So everyone who's like, oh yeah, you got to cut your lattes. You're just going to feel miserable and hate it and guilt yourself. And you're going to end up giving up or you're going to feel like shit. I don't know. So I'm saying the, yeah. the way out is, is raising your income and it's, and there's a way to do it. It just takes a lot of work, but it's the only sustainable path out. Yeah, you let me know once you have uh, the Nick talk on TikTok. I, 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 definitely, <laughs> yeah. I definitely want to know. But uh, you have a great chart in, in the book, which is the transition from human capital to financial capital, which is sort of intuitive, right? Like over time, you're, um, the expected amount you can, can earn uh, like goes down. I mean, you do it very, um, you do it actually, like you said, like evidence-based, like you discount it and 
Um, but even intuitively, it's like, yeah, over time, your your expected income goes down for not just because of the uh, progression of time, but also because you're going to be out of step with like the skills that are needed, like actually the, the risk and the, like all of that goes up. And so you have to reinvest in financial capital. Um, and then your questions in, you know, around income is always like, well, how do you, you, you basically take a set number for the human capital, but the reality is right. There's kind of a wide range and, and you touch a little bit on that. Like what can you do to improve that, that human capital that you have on like you write a book, you do, you do media. Um, I'm curious how you think about that, that trade-off. Like, is that, do you feel like that's, that's intuitive? And like, where'd you pick up that? I, I just, I, I just remember that chart. And I was like, this is, it, it, like you show that to somebody who's not convinced they need to save a lot. And he's like, no, the value you're going to earn is going to go down. Like you got a replacement like that. Um, I don't know what the, what the question is, but like, tell me about like how, how you put that together. Like, is, does that resonate with people? Cause I, it, it really struck me something that you like intuitively know, and then you see it as a chart and you're like, oh, of course that's how it works. Yeah. I think, well, that's the whole point of saving for retirement, right? Is you're trying to like to have all this money that can work for you. You can earn, you can use to, whether it's giving you income or you're just drawing down on those assets. It's like, it's like you're working, right? Every time you do 4% rule, let's say you have a million bucks, you're taking 40 grand out a year for 30 years, right? And you're doing that because you're like, need to replace your earnings. And so you're basically building this financial version of yourself, right? A financial asset that's like you, that just pays you from your resources you've accumulated over the years. Um, and I think people intuitively get it. I've gotten really good. I mean, this is one of the earlier posts I wrote and people really liked it. And so I've included some of that in there just briefly. And it's not a whole chapter, but I just touch on it at points. And yeah, I think people like it. They understand it. And it also kind of, it fits very well with, you know, in chapter one in the book, I say, you know, the save invest continuum. It's like when early on in your, in your career, you have to focus on savings and getting money and saving it and getting it invested. And that's the process. You're kind of taking your human capital, your labor and all that when you're young, and you're kind of converting it into financial resources so that later in life, that's paying you, right? And so that's the that's the process. That one chart is the save invest continuum over an entire lifetime happening, right? And so at some point, you're going to have roughly the same amount of you know, financial capital and human capital, like expected, you know, future earnings. And that's when like, you're kind of, you know, at the same, you're at a spot where like, Hey, I can earn as much as my, or my portfolio can earn me as much as I can earn myself in the next year. And that's kind of cool when you get to that point. I'm, I'm basically at that point now after 10 years, I mean, for some people it'll take more time, but yeah, I'm at the point now where the, the amount of money I can save in the year and the amount of money my portfolio can grow in like a good year, obviously, in like the average year is roughly the same. And so that's, I think it's kind of cool you know, think about that. But um, yeah, I think it's very intuitive. People get it. They're like, you know, they're, in, they're, yeah. they're on board. So I, I, I guess it, it is a little bit of a, it just, it just struck me. What, what do you think? Is, is there anything that people push back on in the book? Do you think there's anything that's controversial or where people are like, Nick, you, you're like getting this wrong? Or like, I, I you know, is there, how, how do you think about the, the book in terms of mainstream versus? I think the only thing, the only thing I, you have to realize, I wrote the book in early 2021 inflation hadn't been kicking up that much yet. And I said, yeah. like, you know, at the time I was saying like, hey, historically, like, you know, inflation is generally low and, you know, times it goes up. And I talked about it briefly, but I didn't touch on it too much. And the book gets released in a time where inflation's hitting records, right? So it's like, mm -hmm. you're writing it with information you have at the time. You're saying what's, you know, to be true at that point in time. And like all the data I used was through end of 2020. So I, everything I had was through end of 2020. I didn't use anything past that because I didn't want to start, you know, messing with anything. So at the end of 2020, a lot of the stuff's true, but now like inflation's kicked up a lot. And so I should have, if I had known inflation was going to be 8.5%, I would have focused a lot. Cause I do talk about inflation in the book, but I would have focused a lot more on like, okay, what are the, you know, I maybe would have taken the whole chapter on income producing assets and said like, well, let's look at these after inflation. I should have, cause I just talked about nominal returns there just to kind of get people just interested in these different assets, but I probably would have focused a lot more on inflation. And that's a fair counterpoint, but at the same time, you have to realize that there's this lag in publishing, right? It's like I start writing January 21, I finish July, it gets published in April the next year because there's a supply chain crisis, it should have come out in February. So either way, that lag, and then it ends up, this is something I can't go back. I can't say, hey, let's put in version two where I update all the inflation stuff. I can't do that, right? So as a result, like if there is ever is a second edition or something, I would add in more, I would probably dig deeper on inflation. So um, it's a fair critique, but it's also like, you know, what could I do at the time? Right. You know, it's like people are people are always being dominated by the headlines If inflation ends up coming back down again and goes back to two, 3% a year. You know, people are going to forget all that. And then the book will be timeless once again, you know, but it's in the moment inflation's high and I don't discuss enough about like high inflation periods. So. Yeah. I mean, it's hard also because there aren't that many, right. I always wonder, yeah. I mean, the data obviously that you use, there's, I guess, going back to, to the twenties, like there's, there's a good chunk of data, but 
at the end of the day, I do sometimes, and, and you touch on this, right? Like there's some stock markets that over time either had long period, like really long periods, like Japan of, of just going sideways. Or if you go back to, I don't know, World War II or now Russia, there's, there's instances where the society in that stock markets kind of just completely falls out of bed, like disappears or gets mm -hmm. uh, expropriated. Like, um, and we're sort of in a, a privileged position here in the US, but um, how do you think about those kinds of tail risks that are just really rare? And like, is that just like diversification? Like how, how, do, you, how do you think about um, whether there's just, I don't know, is, is there like enough data in the data that we have? I don't know if that's the right question, but like the, the hundred years that we have, like yeah. there's a specific environment and now you're like looking forward, like, I don't know, maybe it's all gonna be playing out a little bit differently. Yeah, no, I think the only the only way out is diversification. Even then, like you can diversify your way out. Like I could let's say I have, you know, okay, I have, you know, international stocks, right? Okay, great. But I still own a decent amount of US real estate through REITs and US stocks. If something were to happen where like the US dollar became worthless, hyperinflation, societal collapse, like, okay, I have some wealth, which I'm gonna be able to convert and do it. But like I'm now going from having a nice lifestyle to a very terrible one. I'm probably gonna have to flee the country or something, right? So it's like you're going to at least be okay. Like, I don't think I'll ever go hungry because of my diversification, but I'm not going to be living the same lifestyle. Like, I can't preserve, no one can ever like preserve a, a, a lifestyle status unless you have so much wealth that it just wouldn't matter. And you have like compounds in different cities around the world. And even then, like, what if the electricity goes down? What if this happens? Well, I mean, there's so many, if there's an apocalypse, it's not going to matter. Right. And so I think a lot of these times, these tail risks are far more important to like your day to day life than your portfolio. And you're not going to care. Whatever happens in your portfolio is, is, second or third order or, or like or sorry uh in importance like tertiary to the most important thing which is like there's a war between russia and ukraine and so the stock market went down 80 percent. yeah that sucks a lot of people lost money but like your bank your assets might be frozen you might not be able to get out of the country you might have all these other things which are far more threatening to your day-to-day -day existence than the stock market and that's why i always think like the stock market is really just kind of a as i said a second second or third tier thing relative to the economy. So the reason 08 was bad was not because the market went down 50% is because a lot of people lost jobs, whole industries went under insurance companies, all this stuff happened. People, you know, that was the mayhem, really. That's why 08 was bad, not because oh, it went down 50% from whatever, September 08 to March 09. That's not that bad. You know, in the grand scheme, six months, you can get through six bad months, and then it recovered kind of, you know, so like you can get through that and be fine. That's not the hard part. The hard part is the economic effect. So that's the that's where people's lives are changed, and they can't afford food and stuff like that. That's what you have to worry about. Do, do you think it gets too much attention? I mean, this is funny, right? Because you're sort of in the financial media sphere, but do you think overall just the market, like we're, we're all spending too much time, and I say we all in, in quotes, because obviously it doesn't apply yeah. to everybody, but like we're all spending too much, like I don't know, watching the market, talking about like finance and, and, and all of this stuff, like in general, is it just too much brain power spent on this or? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm more of the opinion of Buffett where they say the market should be open you know, not every day or whatever, once a month or so. I don't know where let the information come in. Then I don't know. I'm not saying I, I'm not, I wouldn't argue for that, but like campaign for it. But like, if someone said that, I'd be like, yeah, whatever, it's fine. Like, you know, I mean, obviously like having more liquidity, I think is generally better, but I agree that people get too obsessed with headlines and they're always upset. Oh my God, what about this? And I always get these emails about like stuff. I'm like, yeah, this is macro stuff. Like, I don't really like to do macro because, you know, are we going to be talking about this in 20 years? Very unlikely, you know, like, oh, yield converted. Like, yeah, it's, I, I admit you look at the data, yield converters, not good, you know, not good. But what options do you have? Oh, I'll move to bonds. Bonds do even worse after the inversion. So it's like, you have no choice. You're just going to have to like, this is going to be terrible and you just have to deal with it. Like, I don't know, <laughs> like you're just in a bad spot and there's nothing you can do to get out of it and you just got to deal with it. And so that's kind of how it is a lot of, that's how I feel about macro. It's like, you just got to, oops, this sucks. Just go, just deal with the roll with the punches, so to speak. Bonds, bonds do even worse in the sense that, um, because stocks were like, is that, and I remember wise. you. I remember you did a post on it, but I don't remember the the table. Yeah, performance-wise, if you're like, okay, yeah. yield curve just inverted, so now I know that um, stocks are going to perform worse historically, at least they have, and so they're generally yeah. do worse than than during times when the when the yield curve's not inverted over the next, let's say, twelve to twenty-four months. So you're like, okay, what should I do? I know stocks are going to do worse. Let's move to bonds, right? But bonds after yield conversion do even worse than stocks do. They do much worse, actually. So. It's not a good, that's not a good strategy. So you don't really have a tactical option, at least one that I, that's easily, I mean, if someone has, maybe Jim Simons knows what you can do after your current version, but I, you know, I don't have access to that type of complexity and all that type of models that you could do. But generally, like, it's not something that's easy for a retail or typical investor to trade on and make money on it consistently. Yeah. So what does your day look like? I mean, 
you're, you've done the book now you, you can um you obviously spend a lot of time on podcasts now but like in general like how much do you deal with people just like inbound versus like digging through data writing your weekly posts like what is your what what do you what is kind of your your focus my weekly posts are only done on the weekend so it's like a, a sole side thing yes it is related to the firm i work at but i have a full-time day job or you know yeah. i'm working 40 hours a week trying to make sure you know you know, the trains run on time, so to speak, basically trying to make sure, you know, the websites are working, the leads are coming in, the leads are getting allocated properly. We're trying to right, make right, sure right. that, uh, you know, onboarding's working smoothly, all these processes in Salesforce. So we're trying to make sure the whole org is just running as efficiently as possible, right? We're very tech heavy. And so because of that, there's a lot of technology in our tech stack. And so trying to make sure that clients get the best experience, that advisors have a good experience servicing clients, that our ops team has a good experience, et cetera. And so I'm trying to work on as much of that as possible. There's still a lot more to be done. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's grown a lot since I, I joined the firm. We were under 800 million and now we're almost at 3 billion. And obviously that's incredible growth in, you know, less than four years. So, but yeah, it's been a, it's been a ride and it's been very fun. And so I'm still just trying to grow the firm. You know, that's what we're trying to do. So obviously a lot of that comes from leads, how many leads we get. It's kind of the leading, a leading indicator of, right. of growth. Nice. But, um, nice. But yes, that was, no, it was not on purpose, but yes, yeah, leading indicator growth, but yeah. And, 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 addition to that you know there's a lot of other things too so. so i mean i think it's incredible that you're just like writing every weekend just like on top of on top of that so i'm i'm, mm -hmm. I'm impressed but I'm, I'm curious so i think sometimes like obviously kind of the firm in general has done a really good job like occupying um that spot and doing a lot of media and and growing um through that do, do you think i'm always i'm always torn whether this is sort of something we're going to see a lot more of or whether it's a little bit um, sort of path dependent and like once a few people do it, right, you don't need another person. Like how many people do you need to write? Um, do you need there to be to write about the same topic? Like I'm, I'm curious if you if your perception is like, okay, eventually every, you know, advisory firm is going to have like that kind of media presence and, and compete in that way with, with podcasts and blogging or whether it's sort of, no, you, there's only a few that can do it and then um, you'll, you'll have to figure out something else. Yeah, I think it's there's not a lot of people that that a love to do this stuff, but then b can do it, and I think that's that's a thing. Um, there are people that do it, obviously, but if I mean it's tough, it's tough to write content. It's really tough. I think you know I don't explain how it's done. I mean, explain to how many people do it and how many people do it well. I mean, you know the grind. So I think it's because you know you know how tough it is. You realize like it's you know once you try to do it, people think oh yeah I could do that. There's and then okay go do it then. You know it's like it's almost like the I still I never forget this line in the Social Network when. Uh, you know the the Winklevoss are suing. You know, I remember mm -hmm. I can't remember the names of the character, or the names of the actors in the movie. But basically, the Winklevoss yeah. are talking to Zuckerberg's character, and Zuckerberg says, "If you had built Facebook, you would have built Facebook, right? Like, go build yeah. the Facebook, then go do it. Then, if you're so good, go do it." And I I think that is such a powerful point. And like, I know people hate on Zuckerberg for a host of reasons, and trust me, I I have my own issues with Instagram and Facebook and bots and scammers and all that crap. But at the end of the day, I believe like he's fundamentally like his ethos of like just building stuff. And I, I believe in that. I'm a huge Zuckerberg fan because of that. So even though I will troll him at times, I definitely think he's, I'm a huge admirer of him because I think he's actually doing it to actually build something and not just because of money and all these other things. I really believe, I believe deep down in his soul, that's like secondary um, to what he cares about. So, yeah, I think that that building ethos is like a lot of things, the, the end product, right? It, it kind of looks very straightforward. Like, oh, you just pick this topic and then you looked at the data set and you created the graph. Like, okay, mm -hmm. I could do that. But it's like, no. And, and especially with the consistency uh, with um, um, that, that you're putting out stuff. I'm, I'm wondering, like, how does that work? Because I have sort of my own process and it's, a, it's pretty messy. But like, do you have a pipeline of, you know, you kind of know the next 10 topics you want to tackle and eventually it'll find its way into another, in, into the next book? Or do you sort of, you know, jam on things as they come along week, week by week? How, how much planning is there, is there for Nick? It varies a lot. So like at some times I remember I've used to have like a bunch of drafts, which I, you can imagine them as like different pots sitting on the stove and like different, you know, some yeah. have just ingredients. There's no heat on them. Some are kind of just simmering a little, some are like ready to kind of take off the ready to serve kind of thing. So you can think of it like that. And sometimes I have nothing going and I just have to like come up with something, you know, it, it varies every week. So you know, this last week I wrote about inflation, why I think people are thinking about inflation incorrectly. And I just kind of, you know, I just had this epiphany where I was like, 
I actually thought about, I was like, is that true? And I said, oh, that's actually not true. Let's just write about that and see how it, see how it does. And so I just like to kind of reframe, reframe common things because a lot of stuff just like logically makes sense. Then when you actually like run the numbers, like, oh, actually, yeah, that doesn't make sense as much as I thought it would have, right? So um, yeah, I think a lot of things just rethinking, like literally just almost a lot of stuff you can do is just say like, is that true? Like literally just ask that, is that true? Like a lot of things we just assume to be true and you just ask like, is that actually true? And then just see and oh, okay, yeah, most of the time it is. And so you'd be wasting time, but once in a while you run it and you're like, oh, wow, that's actually not as great as it sounds like, oh, maybe maxing your 401k isn't as much of a, you know, oh, these people, you know, the average 401k fees across all plans is like 50 bips and you get a 70 bip, you know, tax alpha. So you're saying you're, you're saying you're locking up your capital 59 and a half for 20 bips a year. Like, are you kidding me? Like, that's shocking, shocking to me that people that this is not like headline news across the country. Right. But it's not people are just they'll ignore it. They'll say whatever. And so got to keep putting the message out there. Right. That's all. That's all you can do. Yeah, I, I thought that was interesting. That was one of the many nuances where I was like, oh, I never thought about it that way. Like, yes, you're kind of with a um, an IRA or, or 401k, like anytime you make those choices, like you're starting to to limit kind of a little bit your your optionality of what else you could do with that. And you're like, wait, actually, the fee structure in this product is generally different. So you kind of um, and, and I just how do you like find these so is this just like you looked at it and like, is that true? And then looked at it from every perspective? Because I like that question, but I'm like, not sure I would. Um, like, like what's, your, what's your process for figuring out something like that and, and, and figuring out like, oh, no, it's actually, about, it's actually about the fees and, you know, on an annual. But like, that's pretty granular, you know, in terms of like even thinking about like, is that true? How many layers down do you go? Yeah, well, I think so for in the case of the 401k, IRA and 401k are very different because IRA, you can pick the investment. So that changes stuff a lot. Yeah. So let's say you couldn't pick, which is like the 401k, here are your options, basically. Like, do you want to order off this menu? That's all you have. You can't all a cart anything. In that case, I was like, okay, you know, we all know that you have to pay the income tax at some point. You either pay it up front and you pay it later, right? And that's a Roth is up front, the traditional is later. But the real benefit of that is not paying capital gains, right? So if the capital gains tax was zero, the 401k as a vehicle is it's really like what's the point of it really the only the only option you're getting is you're you're going to play in income tax games which is okay if you did a traditional like a roth if if capital gains was officially zero for everything long term short term a zero for forever there would be no point to a roth 401k literally none outside of like the employer match there'd be absolutely no point to doing it right so you can see the only thing that actually matters is that after tax, that capital gains avoidance, right? So it's like, how much do you actually get benefits? So I just run that, run a simulation. Hey, you put this much every year, you do that over the long term. What's the exact fee you would need to pay to where those two accounts or a brokerage account where you're you're not getting that avoidance and the, the Roth where you are getting that avoidance basically match up and it's about 70 bips a year. Okay. We know that how well people have to pay for these for like, there's all in fees for the 401k plan, you know, the funds, and then also the plan itself usually has fees. So how much are you paying? Okay. Look that up. Oh, it's 50 bips a year or something. Okay, now we know that there's 20 bips. You know, that's the that's the difference, right? After taking into account your average fee across all these, that's the difference right there. And so you look at it, you're like, is that is that a lot of money? Is that worth it to lock up your money until you're 59 and a half? And I don't know it is. And so just things like that. Just start questioning pieces along. And really where that started, there was a guy named Chris Crone who has some pretty controversial personal finance opinions, some outlandish stuff, I'm not gonna lie, but he had this like this funny video. He's like, 401k, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. And so people were just destroying him, like really just pulling him. And some of the stuff he said in there was crazy. I'm not going to lie. Some of the stuff was like, okay, yeah, that's a little outlandish, bro. But then I said, you know what? Let's Maybe he just feels his intuition and he just can't explain it, right? Like maybe he's right without realizing he's right. And he's just saying things that make sense in his head. But like maybe his intuition is right. He's like, let me test it. And so after doing it, I said, you know what? He's actually like has more of a point. You know, like he didn't know why, but maybe his intuition was right without realizing. I think there's a lot of people that have really good intuition, but they can't explain why it's true. And so I ran the numbers and I was like, hey, this person who everyone in Fintwood is saying is idiot is actually not as dumb sounding. I mean, yes, some of the things he said were a little silly, but I think his intuition was a lot stronger and more intelligent. And if I had just written him off as an idiot from the beginning, I never would have come to this insight, which was kind of shocking to a lot of people. So and, and that's it. And I, and I don't think like there's any, right. You know, there's obviously people that should max out their 401ks. There's obvious exceptions. If you're in a high tax state now and you're going to go to a low tax state later in like retirement, or you're going to go to Florida or something. It obviously makes sense to do these types of max games. Cause you're that, that income tax arbitrage is much bigger than any sort of like fee thing you're probably gonna have to pay in your 401k, but um, for it, every person it's going to vary. So that's the problem. Tax advice is so tough. I, I hate writing yeah. about taxes because every person's different, right? Oh, I have a wife and kids or I have this or I have a business or I have that. It's once you add in all these different variables, it gets really tough to write about. But, I, but I like this, um, this approach 
and I really just taking a step back, like I really like the analogy you used of having the different pots on the on the stove. I was like, I was thinking about it. I was like, yeah, I have that too. I have all these pots. And then what happens is I'm cooking with these few over here. And then there's some others. And then there's the pots you forget. And then at some point, like the idea gets kind of stale and you want to come back to it. And you're like, realize like, oh God, what a mess I've created over here. Like, I, I don't think I'll, I can, uh, yeah. you, you kind of have to. <laughs> Put that in the freezer and maybe come back to it years later or it, something. Yeah. Like I want exactly. a, a universal basic income, which I'm sitting on and I'm waiting until this is like trending again and then I'll drop it. But until then it's just sitting back there and I'm like, uh, it's, it's gathering dust, so to speak. So, yeah. but, but I like um, th this idea of like finding somebody whose intuition is good, but who maybe hasn't built like the model or like done, done the math. And you're like, wait a second, like, actually let's, let's explore this. Let's put some numbers behind it. And again, I think that's kind of the strength of the book where there's a lot of things that are sort of intuitive and you're like, actually without being the person who like constantly says actually, but kind of saying like, okay, let's, let's think this through whether this actually is, is true. What do you think are like the biggest, um, and I'm thinking about things that may have not made it into, into the book, but like, where do you most often come across sort of things that are accepted wisdom, but when you look a little bit closer, you're like, eh, this, this is sort of, you know, I don't know, a silly holdover from, from days when, when, uh, when nobody looked into it or, or things were different, like, like which areas do you run into that? I think the, biggest area we're going to get that is savings advice, for example, like, oh, you should save 20% of your income. And it's like, oh, you should always, you know, and I think that comes from a time when, you know, if you go back in the history of the US, like in the 1950s, there was like one income earner, you know, it's usually very stable. You know, generally, that was the husband, the wife was working at home, you had one income saving 20%, you had everything was straightforward, there was pensions, like, people didn't have to save a lot of times they had a pension, but even those that had saved, okay, you saved a little bit, whatever you had it for a rainy day, it was simple and easy. And now with today's world, the, the nature of work has changed. There's a lot more side gigs. There's a lot more other ways that people make money. And then there's also not just one person. There's usually both people. There's two income earners in the household. So now you've added so much more in terms of volatility of incomes that this whole save 20% always is not going to fly when like, okay, I used to save 20%, but now this I had this shock where I have to pay for the car, I have to pay for the air conditioner or whatever. And because of that, now you can't afford it because you have to save 20%. So you start creating stress. And so my whole thing is like, yeah, save what you can. And like, there's gonna be times when it's gonna be tough to save. And there's gonna be times when you're just flush. And like, if as long as you're always trying to like, to some degree, increase your income to a point where like, okay, I feel like I'm saving enough now, get it to that point. And then you're just gonna, you should be flush for a while. Right. And so that's kind of the idea is like figuring out like, those are, that's an old idea about saving a consistent, you know, save 20% of your income always, no matter what. And I don't think that's accurate for a lot of people. Cause I think incomes have become more volatile over time. For example, like I know, I don't know about you and what you do in terms of monetization or whatever, but like, I have like partnerships with different, you know, maybe I'll run an email ad this, this month or, and I, maybe one month I run three email ads the next month I run, you know, zero or something. So like my income could jump around just from that. Right. So though I have a nine to five, I do have other income coming in. That's like variable. And so because of that, I can't just say, I'm always going to save 20% of that income, no matter what, you know, I just can't do stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Cause, um, I thought one of the big themes of the book was sort of look at the data, but then make sure whatever you figure out that you come up again with sort of a new rule that makes it easy to implement because you can you can get too complex right and like and you sort of have to account for that volatility and, and be flexible but you also want to have something that you can stick to right there's sort of this balance was like i don't know that's that's why i like the, the 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 ending of the book with the with the rules and just being like some of these rules are outdated but then you got to come up with new ones because there is a a need for having um having something that's just an easy guidepost because at the end of the day like who's going to spend like how much time are, are people going to spend day to day um thinking through these decisions right at some point you sort of go back to some heuristic and you're like oh i'm, I'm just going to do this like i don't have time right now to to go into some complex decision making process i just need something that keeps me roughly on on track and i feel like that's where like the book was was really strong like yeah. Especially if your income, if your income is variable and your expenses are variable, like let's say, yeah. oh, I happen to be flying home for the holidays. I plan for, like, you're going to have expenses that, that aren't in your month to month. So you can't be like, I'm always going to take this much money, put it aside and spend the rest because sometimes you're going to have to have extra expenses. And like, the problem is there's not, it's not a linear, easy flow. So because of that, like the whole save what you can is a better methodology, in my opinion, because at the end of the day, you're gonna be like, okay, here's what I have left. And here's what I save, right. Versus okay, I'm going to put aside an X amount and then just spend everything else, no matter what. It's like, I don't think that makes sense because then you're going to be overspending in some months. You're not going to have enough in other months. And it's just like a disaster for your, your mental health, I think. Yeah. Well, Nick, 
appreciate you uh i was gonna say stopping by but like i'm gonna say appearing on my screen sharing <laughs> sharing the wisdom also sharing sharing the book with me and obviously i'm gonna link to that as well as all of the other content that you put out which is like i, I was thinking like if you weren't famous before then now you definitely are because i feel like i you know i i see you putting the message out and which which is good yeah um, niche famous right it's like there's a there's a i think there's like what's the ideal level of fame right and it's like okay is there some level like i think i still think like cliff asness has like the ideal level of fame where everyone respects him in his field but at the same time like if he walked into a random any place like no one would really know who he is and that's kind of great right i think once you get above a certain level it starts getting tough i think you know tim ferris is is almost probably too famous probably but you know you kind of look at that and like those are people like I want to be like a Cliff Asness famous. So just slowly, slowly getting there. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Yeah. Kind of a, a celebrity or like well-respected in that area, but you, but you can still go out to a steakhouse and people won't bother you. And won't yeah, no one, yeah, no one's going to know who Cliff is. Right. And that's great. Yeah, and yeah. I think he probably wants it that way. So I think he would yeah. agree with me on that. So yeah, I think you're getting to that level. So uh, <laughs> slowly, I look forward slowly. to seeing more. I look forward <laughs> to seeing the next book whenever you, um, you know, yep. not not to pressure you, but when when you get to that point, I think it. I think we will we will put something together. I'm still thinking. Got to see how this one does, right? But this one, 